Thanks for joining us for another episode of Check Us Out, the podcast of the Montclair Public Library. I'm Peter Coyle, director of the library, and we're excited to talk to you today about our services, programs, and of course, books. Later on this episode, we'll be joined by Dale Barra, son of famed baseball legend Yogi Berra. He'll be speaking with Alex about his new book, My Dad Yogi, a memoir of family and baseball. But first, Ken's going to be sharing some exciting fiction titles about the great cities of the UK, London and Edinburgh. And Kirsten will tell us about some young adult titles. And then Maurice and Molly will share some great upcoming programs as well as some online resources to help you learn about your family history and discover your genealogy. This is Molly from the Adult Services Department. Hi, this is Maurice from the Adult School. We're going to tell you about some upcoming programs and some more free library resources. Maurice, do you want to tell us about what's going on at the Adult School in December? Sure, Molly. We'll be wrapping up our 2019 season with a series of talks on science, history, and art. We'll kick off the month with a free lecture on the history of our solar system and beyond. We'll be welcoming Princeton University astrophysics professor Joe Dunkley in a free discussion on the history of our solar system called Measuring Our Universe on Tuesday, December 3rd at 7 p.m. We also welcome back history professor Eugene Lieber on Friday, December 6th for his final program of the year, which will be an overview of the history of Sub-Saharan Africa. That will be in the auditorium at 10.30 a.m., again on Friday, December 6th. And popular art educator Janet Mandel will unpack the life and work of important French painter Haim Soutine on Wednesday, December 10th at 7 p.m. Well, that sounds like a very good variety of classes and things to learn about. Thank you. I also want to put in a quick shout out for our harp concert on December 21st. It's a Saturday at 4.30 p.m. Faye Fishman is going to return and play some holiday tunes on the Celtic harp. It should be great. She was here last year and it was just lovely. So exciting. Yeah, I think it's a good a good event to go to if you're feeling stressed about holiday shopping or planning or anything like that because you can just sit back, relax and enjoy this beautiful music. She's very talented. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to pivot over to some genealogy databases. The holidays can be a great time to kind of get into your your genealogy research and and looking back to your roots. And the library has two resources that are free for you to use to assist in your research. We have Ancestry Library Edition, which is a a version of Ancestry.com that is accessible at the main library. It has over 8,000 searchable domestic and international databases for genealogical research. It's a great tool and anyone can come in and use it. You don't have to sign in. You don't have to have a library card. You just need to go to our website, montclairlibrary.org slash database list, and that will pull up our whole list of research databases. And you would just go to a for Ancestry and click on the link and you can get right in. And we also have a great new database courtesy of the New Jersey State Library called Heritage Quest. And that is also an Ancestry genealogy database. It just has different collections than the Ancestry database, so they they complement each other very well. So for example, the Heritage Quest has lots of uh, cemetery records, whereas the Ancestry has lots of census and voter lists. So that's just two examples of two different things that you can access using both databases, but there's even more than that. And the nice thing about Heritage Quest is that you can actually use that at home in the comfort of your own home. You don't have to come into the library, so you could certainly use it at the library as well. For for that database in particular, you do need to sign in with a library card and you do need to access it via 
a specific link. So if you have a Montclair Library card, you would just go to that same URL that I said before, montclairlibrary.org slash database list, and then you would find Heritage Quest and just click on that link. If you are not a Montclair Library card holder, maybe you're listening at home and you live in a different town, but you just want to hear about Montclair Library stuff, which is great, you can still access this because it's for everybody with a public library card in New Jersey. That's because the state library pays for it. So you would just need to go to your own library's website and find that link. If you have questions or if you get stuck on anything and you need some help, you want a quick tutorial, you can go to montclairlibrary.org slash book a librarian and book an appointment with us and we'll kind of take you through both resources, show you the differences, show you how to get started because we really want you to use these excellent resources. And the holiday season is the perfect time for that, you know, because family is around. And as you, you know, learn facts, dates, you know, names, maybe even families around, older family members many times, so you can, you know, run it by them, you know, run places by them and, you know, makes it a rewarding experience for the entire family. I think so, yeah. I think between people and research databases, you can find a lot of information. Sure, sure. And I know, I know this is a time of year where people kind of start to get inspired to kind of go back and, and look at their family trees. So I hope we can help with that. Okay, Maurice, anything else to add? Just uh, happy holidays to everyone. Thanks for everyone for supporting, who has supported, I should say, the Montclair Library throughout 2019, all of our programs, all of our lectures, all of our collections as well. You know, but, you know, we're here as a facility, as a staff, to serve the community. So we always appreciate, you know, when we are able to, you know, provide resources that uh, people use. So I'd like to add that if you are interested in using the resources that we talked about for genealogy research, you can go to montclairlibrary.org slash book a librarian, and you can book a half-hour appointment with us to get started, and um, we can answer any questions that you might have. And um, I really encourage you to utilize that service and um, get some help from us getting started So because we really want you to use these resources. Um, you could also call us at 973-744-0500, extension 2234. Thank you for listening to our segment. Hi, this is Ken, and Kirsten and I are here to talk about some new books. If you're like me, this year you'll be doing some traveling around the holiday season. One of the things I like to do when I travel is to read books set in the places that I'll be visiting, getting something of a feel for the place while I'm there. Since this year I'll be going to London and Edinburgh, here are a few things on my list. First is the new novel by John le Carré, Agent Running in the Field. The main character is Nat, a veteran spy who takes over The Haven, a loose-knit group of London-based agents keeping a continuous watch on what's going on in Russia. One of the things I've always loved about le Carré is his use of less-than-glamorous locations. This one takes us down some interesting back streets of London. Also, for a writer who made his name with Cold War stories, the new book is very up-to-date and is infused with anger at Brexit, Trump, and the state of the world today. Even at age 88, Le Carré still seems very contemporary. Next is a completely different type of London story. A friend of mine raved over a book called Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston, so I felt I had to read it. It's sort of a contemporary romance about the son of the President of the United States who has a at first testy but ultimately deeper relationship with a British prince. Tempers and diplomatic relations flare, but eventually love conquers all. This isn't the type of book I normally pick up, but once I did, I sailed through it. An extremely fun read. For Edinburgh, I always reach for the latest Ian Rankin book. In this case, it was not a novel, but a play called Rebus, Long Shadows. 
Rankin's longtime hero, or perhaps anti-hero, John Rebus, crosses paths with a young woman whose mother had been a murder victim early in his career. He is determined to finally close this cold case and seeks out the assistance of his colleague, Siobhan Clark, and his old adversary, Big Juror Cafferty. The plot is very strong, but because it's a play, the reader misses out on Rankin's wonderful atmospheric descriptions of Edinburgh. So for that, I'll pick up the latest Rebus novel, In a House of Lies, and take it with me on my trip. And even though I mostly talk about new books here, I have to give a plug to my absolute favorite London novel, which I always pull out before heading there. It's called Absolute Beginners by Colin McInnes, and it's a classic about a young photographer in West London in 1958 and his interactions with the people around him. It's very ahead of its time in its depiction of how the immigrant and LGBTQ communities impact city life. But the beautiful descriptions of London are what keep me coming back to it. It's one of my favorite books of all time, and Montclair is the only library in the Buckle system which has it in our collection. And last, of course, don't forget that Montclair Public Library has an extensive collection of up-to-date travel books for everywhere from Prague to Pittsburgh to help you figure out the best places to visit. Well, that's all for this month. Happy travels. Now here's Kirsten to talk about some young adult titles. Thanks, Ken. This is Kirsten, here with some teen recommendations and upcoming releases. So I just finished reading The Beautiful by Renee Adea. I devoured it in about two days. Uh, This is the first in a projected series, and I'm so happy because I love the world it's set in so much. It takes place in a very darkly sensual 1872 New Orleans. Our main character, Céline Rousseau, flees from Paris to the Ursuline Convent in New Orleans for reasons that quickly become clear. And immediately upon her arrival, she becomes entangled with a mysterious group called the Court of the Lions, as well as an eerie presence that seems to watch her every move. Full of great food descriptions and city descriptions, this is for anyone who loves evocative southern settings and darkly magical themes. It's also populated by a diverse cast of characters, and race and sexuality are discussed frankly. The author has said that she was strongly influenced by the Anne Rice books she read when she was young, and it shows. I'd recommend this to anyone looking for something they can't put down. Up next on my reading list is Mary H.K. Choi's Permanent Record. I loved her previous book, Emergency Contact, for its humor, realistic and effective use of social media as a means to further the story, and memorable characters. Her new book follows a debt-ridden 19-year-old working at an upscale Brooklyn deli who has a chance encounter with an international pop star, and both find their lives changing as they grow closer. Filled with fun culinary concoctions, up-to-the-minute references, humor, and romance, this is sure to be as enticing as Choi's previous work. Like Emergency Contact, Permanent Records sits on the line of young adult and new adult, with slightly older characters and more adult themes than you'd usually find in YA. Now I'd like to talk about a couple of upcoming titles. First is One of Us is Next, which is the sequel to the super popular One of Us is Lying by Karen McManus. This is coming out in January, and it picks up after the events of the first book, which I won't spoil for anyone who hasn't read it yet, but I highly recommend it. You should definitely pick it up. It follows Maeve, the younger sister of one of the main characters. The original four do make appearances, but the story really belongs to Maeve and her group of friends. The students of Bayview High are receiving anonymous truth or dare text messages. If they choose truth, one of their secrets is revealed. If they choose dare, they pass the mysterious test posed by the anonymous texter. All seems in good fun until a student dies playing the game. Like One of Us is Lying, this novel shifts perspectives so that you get different insights and possibly obfuscations as you go. It's sure to be in high demand, so place your request as soon as it comes in. 
Finally, we have another upcoming sequel, also out in January. The Night Country follows Melissa Elbert's The Hazelwood, as Alice, our main character, attempts to readjust to mortal life as a high school student in New York after her harrowing time in the dark fairy tale realm written about by her adoptive grandmother. Her classmate and possible love interest Ellery remains in the alternate dimensions of the Hazelwood, but finds himself wearying of the journey and wishing to return to normal life. Meanwhile, a mysterious killer is copying the methods used in the Grimm stories, a surreal, lush follow-up to an engaging opener with strong characters and a unique voice. I think that's all I've got for you for right now, so happy reading! All right. Hello. Check us out, listeners. Uh, this is Alex from Montclair Public Library here, and I have Dale Barra. We're interviewing him. We're going to talk about his new book, My Dad Yogi, a memoir of family and baseball by Dale Barra, and with Mark Rabowski, I believe. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who don't know, Dale Barra, obviously the son of Yogi Barra. He played for the Pirates from 1977 to 1984. It's the Pittsburgh Pirates, by the way. Won the World Series with them in 1979. Played for the Yankees, too. I believe mm-hmm. 1985-86. And the Houston Astros, 1987, right? Correct. And uh, you're now, if I got this right, current principal operator of LTD Enterprises. Yes. Or, yes, one of them. Larry, Timmy, Dale. Yep. We're all we're all co's there. Equal footing, Equals, huh? yep. And you guys, that's uh, managing, like, the, the brand of... Well, uh, it was dad. around long before Dad passed away you know uh you know and we handled all of his business affairs and his autograph and his likeness and his intellectual property and uh you know for many years dad was played baseball in an era and retired in an era where they were where where agents took advantage of players and uh you know and, and dad was not getting paid the proper amounts of money for his services whether it be a banquet or whether it would be uh Get a book deal or we're doing a commercial for a product and yeah. uh, LTD took over me Larry and Timmy and we just you know we got him market value and that's it very good you're doing your dad a wonderful service that's there. correct and also for those who don't know Dale's father Yogi Berry you might have heard of him uh, he has a litany of stats and impressive records to go over I'm just gonna keep it to his World Series records because the, the man knew how to play in the World Series. Uh, he had five World Series rings, uh, an MVP in the World Series in 1951, 54, 55. He won the record for World Series games played in 75. World Series at bats, he had 295. Hits 71. Doubles 10, tied with Frank Frisch. Uh, he's second in walks in the World Series behind uh, good old Mickey Mantle. Third in homers behind Mickey and uh, Babe Ruth. And I think he's second to Mickey in RBIs. Um, Mickey had 48, 39. And then runs as well. Mickey had 42. And Yogi had 41. But I have to correct you. Dad had won 10 World Series rings. Not five. Oof. They won five in a row. But as a player, uh, he won 10 World Championships. That's what makes him Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it's a very, very fun book joke. I like that. Thank yeah. you for correcting me, too. I would not want to get anything wrong about your pops here. So I think we're just going to jump into it here. Go ahead and ask, ask me some baseball questions. So I still got to ask Yankees or Mets fan. I'm a huge Yankee right fan. Right now, I'm a, a Yankee fan now. <laughs> there you go. But I root for the Mets too. I that's, can do both. That's very nice of you. Mm-hmm. I noticed you did get a, a nice dig in at uh, Aaron Judge and John Carlos Stanford striking out so many times. Well, yeah. This season I, that was a little that was a fun uh, modern day reference. Um, I also want to ask you another question your dad seemed like the way you you portrayed him in the book he seemed like a really caring loving father who emphasized um 
all you have to do is have fun and do your best. I think he, he did say that to you. Yes, at often. One point. Do you think that helped you um, not experience so much like pressure and like living up to expectations when you were playing ball as opposed to like Mickey Mantle's sons? Absolutely. But yeah. at the same time now, uh, you know, a lot of the stars were aligned, so to speak. It just so happened that me, Timmy, and Larry were, uh, you know, we were great players, high right. school players, amateur players. So uh, the other times when the kids were striking out and or, or not having success and their fathers had to witness non-success between me, Timmy, and Larry and my dad watching me play football, hockey, baseball in high school, mm-hmm. he saw nothing but success. So it, there was really nothing to that that he had to. There was nothing much that he could he could uh, be negative about because we were always so good. I see. Yeah, if that makes sense. No, that, that uh, makes you know, and once sense. again, it's a stars aligned thing where you know I'm always getting three hits. I'm scoring a couple goals every game, scoring a touchdown. You know, I'm, we were never we never didn't realize success so dad never had a reason to be negative yeah right he never saw you standing the <laughs> exactly. wrong way in the banners box exactly. uh, with your shoes untied so that does make sense um, so you came out of the minor leagues and you made it on to that historically fun loving 70s pirates team yeah sure you came up in 77 right 77 yep and then the 79 pirates team you called them the we are family we are team, family right? sister sledge team do you think you could explain uh, just to our listeners what um, why they were called the We Are Family? Well, because we had a leader, second to none. Uh, the man who I admire most in my life, other than my dad, and his name was mm-hmm. Willie Stargell. That's right. Willie Stargell was a supreme leader. He was the most generous, caring, Hall of Famer, and he kept our team together. Uh, you lost together, you won together. And, you know, I've never seen a guy who's a, a most valuable player, a guy who had 40 home runs a year, you know, when a young kid like me made an error and I had my head down in front of my locker making an error to lose a game, he'd be the first guy to come up to you and say, hey, kid, we lose as a team and we win as a team. Put your head up because tomorrow we're going to win and you're going to help us. So, I mean, you know. That guy was just amazing, and uh, you know when we started winning in 1979 and getting a lot of momentum, he would just come into the locker room singing "We Are Family," and we all caught on <laughs> to it. And then finally, you know, Sister Sledge came and sang at the stadium, and it was the "We Are Family" oh, they, team. They came and did a live performance. Oh sure, yeah. yeah. That sounds like a fun time, and Willie yeah. sounds like a great guy to play for. Someone who yeah. really makes you want to show up. Oh yeah. Who do you think uh, was the toughest pitcher? David faced me. Uh, well, a guy named Don Sutton. Okay. Uh, not really. Uh, you know, probably most people expected me to say Nolan Ryan, maybe, or a or Steve Carlton type of guy. But sure. Me, Don Sutton was the hardest guy. Uh, you know, you know, you see what we call uh, high school curveballs, and then uh, you go to the minor leagues and you learn what a real curveball looks like. Mm-hmm. And what a real slider looks like in the minor leagues, and it's believe me, it's nothing like high school or college. And then all of a sudden, you get to the big leagues, and then you see a big league curveball. Well, Don Sutton's curveball started behind my left ear and ended up over the outside corner at my ankles. And Goodness. it was then I realized <laughs> that, uh oh, this is the big leagues, 
And uh, I happened to end up facing him about 30 or 40 times in my career, and I don't remember getting a hit off him. So wow. he was my hardest pitcher by far. So he really owns you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so who is your favorite pitcher to face, the one who you think you had the most uh, success off of or just felt the most comfortable batting against? Oh, you know, gee, any left-hander. I don't okay. want to single anybody out, seriously. <laughs> and, and, and you know what, more than likely to the average person and the layman, not layman fan, but, you know, they're not even going to know who I say. I could say Ray Burris, for example, was a guy who hit well. A guy I hit pretty good was a guy at X Met named Mike Scott, who ended up pitching very well in Houston right. after. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I just whoever, um, mostly any left-hander, I, because I like I like the guys throwing from the opposite yeah, side. Yeah, you could see it a little bit easier. Absolutely, right? sure. Um, in the book too, you also mentioned, I guess, very proudly your catcher's interference. Um, record. I guess you had the record at one time. Never yet. Yeah, never did it on purpose. <laughs> I never did it on purpose. I, I think I tied with Pete Rose, so I'm in good company. But yeah, I, no, he did have that one. Yeah, yeah but I, re- but I, you know, my manager used to ask me. You know, we would. Uh, I it would general a lot of times in steel situations. The catchers like to get an early jump on the pitch. Yeah, right. And if they think you're not swinging. They'll jump out and try to catch the ball and throw the runner out at second. But if you swing late, you'll hit their glove. Certainly. So, uh, you know, I think I waited. I was One of the things I was good at was hitting the ball the opposite field. So I waited a lot late to swing. And sometimes catchers would get a little overzealous and I'd end up hitting their glove. So, um, you know, it is what it is. So you didn't stand extra far back. No, box. did no. not do that. That's okay. So some little personal questions now. Um, and I think this is actually your brother who had like the never-ending stash at Yahoo or Yoo-Hoo. Yoohoo when he was a kid. Oh yeah, did you ever crack into that a lot? Or always, <laughs> we always had. We, we were famous. We drank warm Yoohoo too. We didn't even have it in the refrigerator. You know, that was back in the days. You really didn't have extra refrigerators and like they do now. You know. Yeah. So it would come the the move the uh, you know the delivery truck. Because Dad was part owner of Yoohoo, of course, yes. and chocolate drink, Me and he endorsed Yoo-Hoo. it. So you know the truck would come and it'd drop cases of Yoohoo, and we'd put it in the garage. So we'd be out playing basketball or wiffle ball or playing, and then we'd end up drinking uh, drinking Yoohoo all the time. Warm go. too, like I said. That sounds like a, a kid's pleasant dream right there, <laughs> just nonstop Yoohoo's. Yeah. You also mentioned that you met the Almond Brothers <laughs> while you were in. South Carolina, I guess more specifically, uh, Dickie Betts. Well, and no, Trucks. let me get let me get specific there. They were I met a couple of the Marshall Tucker Band guys in in cool. in South Carolina in Spartanburg. Uh, Toy Caldwell. They was at a diner one time after the game, and I happened, being from Montclair, where you know we are a special group here in Montclair back in the seventies. Uh, you know sure. we were, we listened to soul music and Motown and country music and. I went down to South Carolina in 1976, and I knew who Marshall Tucker was. And I'm Bradenton, in Bradenton, Florida, where we trained, mm-hmm. happened to be where the Almond Brothers were. And Butch Trucks' uncle is Virgil Trucks, who was okay. a pitcher back in the 1940s. And oh. Butch Trucks loved baseball, and and he knew that I was on the Pirates, so he went to a game and introduced himself. I got to know him. And by the time it was done, 
Uh, I was very good friends with most of the Allman brothers and leaving them tickets in Atlanta when I went down there to play the Braves when, wow. it, when, when I was with the Pirates. And when they were in New York at the Beacon Theater, they'd come out and come out to Shea Stadium and watch me play. That is incredibly cool. Um, yeah. Big Allman Brothers fan, so that's yeah. that's really cool hearing. Did you ever go to any of their concerts? Sure, or, many yeah. of them. That sounds like a good time. Yeah. Um, another question. This one may be a little personal. It's all right. What was it like having uh, the FBI show up at your door that day in the off season? Well, no fun. Your, yeah, I can't imagine it. No fun. fun. You know, that's a that's a, that's that's one part of my life that I don't run away from, and I I have to live with the regret. Of, of of using drugs in my career, there's a lot of, I could there there's a lot of uh, you know I could use a lot of excuses. It was the Studio 54 era. Everybody was doing it. I mean, I remember coming home from baseball, and uh, you know I'd be go to a party in Montclair, and all of a sudden all my friends are in the bathroom. You know, where's where, why is everybody in the bathroom <laughs> at one time? Why are four guys coming out of the bathroom at one time? I'm a guy who'd never smoked pot or barely drank. Sure. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, one New Year's Eve, I just got a, uh, somebody said, here, try this. And I said, okay. And you know what? I'm an obsessive compulsive guy. It's why I was successful. It's why I cried when Little League game got called off or, you know, called the way, you know, or, or when the hockey game got snowed out, I would be so upset. I mean, I want all I wanted to do was play and Let's do whatever. And win, huh? Crazy, oh, yeah. and of course, you know, when I like something, I like it way too much. And uh, cocaine made me feel good and way too good, and I liked it way too much. So yeah. there you have it. I appreciate your honesty on that question, and for to give credit to your mom and pops, uh, it, in the book, the way you described it, they handled it very chill, super cool. Yes, um, they just kind of let them. Well, you know what? Backed off. I guess there wasn't too much they could do about that. that well, it, and, and also, uh, my dad raised us like he was raised. Uh, you know, he was an Italian immigrant, and you had to be responsible for yourself and make your own decisions and live with your and live with your mistakes. And that's the way Dad raised us. You know, it, 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 he 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 would he knew when I told him I was all right, he trusted me and he believed me and he wasn't going to go beyond that. But I thought I was all right because that's what drugs will do to you. Sure. They'll make you think you're all right when you're not. So dad trusted me. He didn't know any better. And, uh, you know, when it came down to it, he saved my life. And now let's talk about Larry Doby Jr., Mm-hmm. Good at friend Michelin of mine. Park. Oh yeah. You still keep up with them, or sure? Yeah. I see Larry all the time. That's really nice. Oh yeah, and you know that was just where I grew up. That was where I grew up playing. It just happened to be in an African American park. And sure. My dad didn't think a thing. My mom and dad, we we didn't we didn't think a thing of it. So we didn't know any different. Well, I didn't. Be, and because my parents never mentioned it or or brought it up or or brought race into the conversation mm-hmm. then I, uh, it, I I never I never felt anything other than this is where I'm going this is where I hang out this is where I play um, I remember I mean I have a, a, a really good story um, when I was 14 years old mm-hmm. Larry Doby and I would play baseball anywhere we could and there nice. was black guys down at Nishawain Park playing baseball they were 30 years old they were grown men out of college. Oh boy. They were the Montclair Apaches. And I would go out there and shag flies and 
play ball with him. And then one day they asked if me and Larry would like to play. And I was a white guy playing with 14 other 30-year-old, 40-year-old, in some cases, African-American men back in 1972. And um, I played center field, and Larry Doby played right field. Cars came from another team coming, and they were all black. Okay, and were they and the same it, ages? Same ages, yeah. old, older <laughs> men who worked in factories who played baseball 20 years. It wasn't until then that I realized that I was playing on a Negro League team in Montclair at Nishawane Park when I was 14 years old. And you and Larry Doby Jr. <laughs> were keeping up with these dudes. So. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, but the fact that I was a white guy playing on a Negro League team and didn't even know it, I mean, I didn't know it. <laughs> I just felt that I was going out there having fun, and these guys happened to be black men, and we were good enough to play with them. That was the that was the thing that was exciting. Do you remember how you did that game? <laughs> no, I no. can't. <laughs> so towards um, the end of the book, I think you, you bring up uh, the incident at the Yogi Berra Museum heist. Yeah. Um, can you take us through that a little bit? Yeah. Just uh, the, the Yogi Berra Museum thing, uh, you know, I, I remember going in the museum one morning and, and uh, you know, I, I didn't, uh, the alarm wasn't on. Okay. I was the first one there. So I just called up our girl. I didn't go out in front to look. I called up our, you know, one of the, the museum director and said, you know, I just came in the back door of the museum, you know, the alarm wasn't on. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, did you look around? I said, no, I didn't. Well, why? And he, he said, just go up front and look around, make sure. So I went up in front and looked around, and all of a sudden I saw the glass on the floor, and some of Dad's most valuable possessions were stolen. Yeah, it's a real shame. Yeah, and then you know, once we got more into it, we I realized it was like a, a Mission Impossible movie that you know these people levitated themselves down from the roof and avoided the electric eyes that we had in there, and had no had, had uh, these saws that they used to cut the glass were state-of-the-art, and they left them, the, all of their equipment there, and all of the equipment had all of the serial numbers and everything scratched off them so that they could leave their stuff there and not be traced. Um, They're thinking they, steps they, ahead. Yep, and then they had a ladder from the top of the roof down to the, and all of their, and all the serial numbers and all of that stuff was scratched off the ladders, so they had no, no leads on where any of the equipment came from. And, and they never they they never found anything, but it had, it, it's all unsellable stuff because no one will ever be able to buy a Yogi Berra ring and make money on it because you can't sell it. Yeah, right. Because they know it was, uh, it was stolen from some, the museum. You also did mention some of those rings might be replicas. Some, yep, there was a, a couple replicas. But <laughs> so criminals, if you're listening out there, yeah, you might have stolen some replicas. Uh, yes. You you also write about your dad's time in uh, World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of his experience during World War II did he share with you guys? Just very little, but uh, you know, it was more about the discipline of World War II that he mm. spoke about and the camaraderie and how they did it. You know, one foot in front of the other, and were you scared? And no, I wasn't scared because the guy next to me and the guy next to him. You know, he would talk right. about that. He would talk about the. You know, uh, you know, he was a D-Day. And he volunteered he for a special. He 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 didn't even know what he was volunteering for at boot camp. He was in basic training in the Navy, 
And then he, he got through basic training and was assigned to, I forgot where he went from there, but they asked if anybody would like to, spe to, to sign up for a secret mission. And Dad had heard that when you do that, you get you get you eat well, and you okay. eat good. He goes, you know, so you know, I heard, you know what, you sign up for this, I'm going to eat good. So he signed up, and it ended up being that they crafted a special uh, five-man rocket machine gun boat that to escort the troops in mm -hmm. during the D-Day invasion when the troops were coming in on the on the troop carriers, and he escorted them in on these little on this little machine gun boat and um, he went right up right up to the shore on day one of, at D-Day and saw a lot of death and saw a lot of uh, carnage and sure. and and you know all, all he did was talk about how you know a horrible thing but at the same time it was you know a, 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 something that he would never forget and humbling the whole works you know definitely the way you know it's mentioned in the book it's a it's like a very intense Experience obviously because there's that dud missile that lands in his ship. Yeah, yeah. A whole bowl of anxiety reading that. Yeah, yeah. Um, was it how how much did you like having your dad call you in the dugouts while he that was, was managing <laughs> managing the Yankees? Right. Yep, that was funny. Birds? That that's just another thing that Dad would do. I remember he'd call me from Kansas City after Don Sutton struck me out three times, and he would. <laughs> He'd call me, and the trainer would say, Dad, your dad's on the phone. I said, what's he, what do you mean he's on the phone? He's, he's managing in Kansas City. <laughs> so I get on the phone. I said, what do you want? He goes, don't worry about it. It's between innings here. I see you struck out three times. And I, he said, how the hell you do that? Because he never struck out. Yeah. And he never would say that to me in a way that I, was feel, that I would feel like he never said it in the way like, what are you doing? Strike out. He'd just say, I see you struck out three times. And I said, yeah, Don Sutton, though, Dad. And he would say same thing. He'd go, what the hell? He's got to throw it over the plate. He goes, I need to strike out three times in a month. And I said, well, I know. But, uh, you know, <laughs> that's why you're you and I'm me. And I would never take offense to it. Did you ever tell him, like, no, I'm not here. I can't, I can't take <laughs> no. this phone call. <laughs> that's fine. That's nice, though. One last question here. Were you at uh, Yankee Stadium on Yogi Berra Day? Sure. When Cone threw his perfect sure, game? Sure, absolutely. Amazing oh, thing. Can you tell me about that experience a little bit? Well, the amazing thing was is that uh, David Cone gave his glove to, to Don Larson, mm -hmm. and Joe Girardi gave his catcher's glove to Dad so they could recreate the 1956 perfect game. That's really cool. So Larson throws the ball to Dad, Dad gives his glove back to Girardi and David Cohn gets his glove back from Don Larson and they go out and proceed to throw a perfect game. With those gloves. I think With they those did. gloves. Come on. I think uh, Joe Girardi did the little leap into, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> into that, David Cohn too. That's crazy. That's crazy. They still show that uh, was it replays of that game on Yes. I know. I'm just amazing that that could happen on Yogi Berra Day. A perfect game. Them simulating it borrowing the gloves and then going out and doing it. Only right. Yogi Berra that could happen to. A little, little Yankee mystique in order right yes, there. Yes, yes. Don't know how it happens, but by God, it does. Well, Tao, I think that's it um, for this afternoon. So, torture's over. Um, All right. You don't have to get grilled in the seat anymore. Okay. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and check out some more books. Thanks so much for listening with us today. Special thanks to Dale Barra for taking the time to be with us. 
We hope you'll join us next time for another episode about your library. For more information about our programs, services, and resources, visit our website, montclairlibrary.org. Thanks so much for your support.